It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Mark Irving, and as Paige said, I serve as the pastor of discipleship and men's ministry at our Brentwood campus. And with a couple of our teaching pastors trotting the globe, both Rob Sweet and Michael Easley are in Israel this morning, um, I get the privilege of being here with you as we continue our teaching series through the Gospel of Mark. And we've entitled it, Following the Servant King, How Jesus' Life Redefines Our Own. Now, the book of Mark has a pretty simple structure to it. You can divide it right in half. And the first eight chapters basically ask and answer one question. That question is this, who is Jesus? And we get to chapter eight, the crescendo, the climax of the book, and Peter gets the answer right. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the prophesied king that the Old Testament talks about who's going to usher in an eternal kingdom. And then there's a transition, and the second half of the book asks and answers one question, and that's this. What does it mean to follow that king? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And it's not what the original disciples expected. They thought they were going to Jerusalem, and the kingdom of God was going to come right then. But Jesus begins to redefine things for them. He begins to turn life upside down for them, and they begin to learn the way to find life is to lose it. That, that the way to become great is to become the least. That the way to glory is through suffering. That the way to find strength is actually to become totally dependent. That the first will be last. And in this passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to redefine two more things for them and for us as we peek over their shoulders. And that is this. He's going to redefine what it means to be good And he's going to redefine what it means to be rich. To put it this way, Jesus wants to redefine our concepts of a good person and a good life. You know, when I think of those two um, ideas, a movie comes to mind. It came out about 20 years ago. It's hard to believe it's been that long. It just seems not not that long ago. But it's Saving Private Ryan. came out in 1998. And I remember going to theater and watching that. And... uh, it's a story about, it's a World War II story about the Ryan family who sends four sons into the European battle. And three of them die in D-Day. And so the military makes an executive decision. We need to pull the fourth Ryan boy out. But the problem is he's in an airborne division and he's been dropped somewhere behind enemy lines. And so the army commissions Captain John H. Miller, played by Tom Hanks, to lead a small platoon of men behind enemy lines and extract Private Ryan from the battle and bring him to safety. And as the plot goes along, many men in that platoon lose their lives in this endeavor. And as they're making the last push to bring Private Ryan to safety, Captain John H. Miller catches a bullet and he slumps down on a bridge and with his dying breath, he, he grabs Private Ryan and pulls him close and says this, earn this, earn this. And then he dies. And the camera is, is, is focused on Private Ryan's face played by Matt Damon. And then this time lapse haps, happens and he turns into an old man still looking in the same direction. The camera zooms out and you see this old man standing in Arlington Cemetery looking at a gravestone presumably of John Miller. And this old man says this, my family is with me today. They wanted to come with me 
To be honest, I didn't know how I'd feel coming here today. Every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that it was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. And then the tears start flowing in this old man's eyes. And his wife, who's in the background, approaches him. And he turns to her with desperation in his voice and says, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me that I've led a good life. You get the picture that the words of of Captain Miller had been hanging over him his whole life. And at, at the core of his being, he had this gnawing sense of inadequacy. Am I good enough? Is my life been worth it? And you know, if we're honest, to one extent or another, we can all relate with that. All of us, when it gets quiet, when the noise of life fades, have a sense of inadequacy. And I don't know about for you, for you but for, for me, oftentimes the questions rise up is, am I good enough? Is what I'm really doing worth it? Is Am I living the good life or am I missing out on something? If you've ever asked a question like that, this passage is for you. You know, the man that we see Jesus encounter today was probably haunted by some of those same questions. You know, all external appearances, he had it together. But there was something lacking in this man's soul that causes him to run up to Jesus with his felt need and ask Jesus a question. Let's dive in. Chapter 10, verse 17. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, we find in verse 32 that journey is taking him to Jerusalem, and we all know what's going to happen there. So as Jesus was setting out for a journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him, excuse me, and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life. And you know, Jesus doesn't answer his question right away. (laughs) Before we unpack this, though, there's a couple things you need to know. I want you to know something about this man, and I want you to know something about Jesus. See, this this isn't the only time in this scripture that this guy is mentioned. He's mentioned in two parallel passages, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And in Matthew, we, we will read here that he's rich. But in Matthew, we also find out that he's young. And in Luke, we find out that he's a ruler. So we call him the rich young ruler. He is wealthy, he is healthy, and he's powerful. He's influential. He's reached the top of the ladder. By any human scorecard, this guy is winning, okay? Now, we'll also find out here that he's not just materially wealthy, he's also morally wealthy. I know this isn't possible, but if, if, picture this. If Tom Brady could marry Mother Teresa and have a baby, it would be this guy, okay? He, he has it all, and he's good from a human perspective. But there's something you need to know about Jesus, and that's the fact that he could see past the surface of things, past what his disciples could see, into this man's soul. 
and read the thoughts and intents of his heart. You see, the disciples did not hinder this guy from running up to Jesus and falling on his knees. We read in just the previous passage last week, who are the disciples trying to keep away from Jesus? The children. Hey, no, no, they're not important enough. But rich young ruler, who clear the way, come on. But Jesus could see beyond the surface. And we're going to see Jesus basically do open heart surgery on this guy. We're going to see Jesus expose three mistakes that this guy was making. And so he runs up, falls on his knees, and says, good teacher. Mistake number one. He underestimated who he was talking to. What does he call him? Good teacher teacher. Now, was Jesus a good teacher? Yes, but he's more than that. He's not just a good teacher. He's the God man. He didn't just come as a teacher of morality to show people how they can do better and save themselves. He came to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He's the God man, God in the flesh. Good teacher. You know, um, (laughs) we have this concept of goodness that's a little bit skewed. And Jesus is going to redefine that here. He redirects. He doesn't answer the guy's question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus isn't denying his deity here. It might sound like that at first reading, but that's not what's going on. He's actually He's actually seeing what this guy thinks of him, and he's calling into question what the man thinks of him. In other words, he's saying this, don't call me good unless you think I'm God, because no one is good again, except God alone. Another thing could be going on here as well is that Jesus might be calling into question what the man thinks of himself. See, this is a culture of reciprocity. One compliment deserves another. And so this guy comes and says, good teacher, What is Jesus culturally obligated then to do? Good, rich, young ruler. And Jesus isn't going to play that game because Jesus knows this man's heart and it's just as messed up as the rest of ours. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, we, we like to our concept of goodness is often on a sliding scale. We'll, we'll make it vertical, okay? A sliding vertical scale, and we have the good people up here. How many of you watched the, the hit show, This Is Us? Okay, quite a few. This is where Jack Pearson would be, okay? He, he, this, if you don't, haven't watched it, it's this guy who always makes the right decision. He's not perfect, but he's really, really good. And every time you watch this show, it's like, man, that's a good guy. And, and then we have... Down here, you know, the people that lie and cheat and self-interest, politicians. And um, there's a sliding scale of good to bad. And somewhere you draw this horizontal line. And everybody up here, their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. Down here, the bad deeds are kind of outweighing the good deeds. And that's what we call good people and bad people. But see, Jesus here is going to erase this line. And he's going to say, no, there's only two type of people, and it's not good and bad. I think there's only two categories, not people. There's only two categories. It's not good and bad. It's sinful and sinless, and there's only one in the last category. No one is good, 
but God alone. If, and if God draws any kind of line, it's a vertical line. And on this side, you have people that are going, trying to save themselves, good people and bad people, quote unquote. And on this side of the line are good people and bad people that recognize, hey, <laughs> we're sinful, all of us, and we can't save ourselves. So over here, you might have religious, well-meaning people who are very moral, who want God to love them, and they're, they're going, I'm going to live my life the best that I can, and I hope that's enough. And I'm going to be really, really good so that God's happy with me. Or you might have other people that are trying to save themselves in a similar way, even though it looks much differently, going, you know, I don't care if God loves me. I love me. And I'm going to seek satisfaction and security in whatever I can get my hands on in this life. And I'm going to live it to its full extent. And that's where I'm going to find my salvation in indulging my desires. people who are trying to be their own savior and people that recognize that's not possible. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mistake number two. He thought that gaining eternal life was a matter of doing instead of receiving. Basically, he's asking this. How can I save myself? What religious work, what large check, what sacred pilgrimage do I need to commit myself to? I just have this little lack, and if I could just add one more thing to my resume, then I think I'd have it. I think I'd be able to have this eternal kingdom that you're talking about. But eternal life is not earned, it's received. How do I know that? What did we talk about last week? How did Jesus talk about children? He said this in the middle of verse 14, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In fact, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it at all. Well, how do children receive stuff? When you give them a gift, do they whip out their wallet and say, oh, let me pay you for that? No, if they're polite, they say thank you and they just take it. If there's one thing I've learned about children as a dad is they're needy. And, and they're okay with that. <laughs> we don't call them dependents for nothing, okay? But somehow when we, we grow into adults, we feel like you need to pay people for stuff. I got a ride from my friend Toby to the airport last week, and I was like, oh, man, how much money do I have? I'm calculating how much money he's spending in gas and whatnot. And I gave him some money. I felt obligated to do that in my adultness. Eternal life is not earned. It's received as a gift. But since the rich young young ruler starts going down the path of doing, Jesus follows him down that path. And he says this in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now notice that, that Jesus just mentions the commands that can be obeyed externally. He conveniently leaves off commands like you shall have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not covet those ones that can only be internally obeyed. And what does this guy say? Mistake number three. (laughs) And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Me and the law were good. Jesus, I've been sinless. True or false? I'm guessing false. We could probably look under the rock of pride and find something there, okay? Okay. But let's, let's not be too hard on this guy because 
If he were to compare himself to everybody else, how's he doing? Pretty good. And that's probably what he was doing. He's looking around going, I'm obeying the law better than everybody else. Me and the law were good. Three mistakes. He underestimates who Jesus is. He thought that gaining eternal life was a matter of doing instead of receiving. And then he overestimates the spiritual health of his own heart. And Jesus doesn't belittle him here. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't come right out and say, dude, you're delusional. (laughs) No. What does he do? Let's look at the text. And looking at him, Jesus felt what? A love for him. The word looking here has to do with a deep, penetrating gaze. Jesus is looking into this man's soul and feels an overwhelming love for him. Why does he love him? Is it because he's a rule follower? Is it because he's obeyed all the rules? No. If, if that was the case, who would Jesus hang out with? He would hang out with the Pharisees. They would be his best buddies. But we know that's not the case. Who did Jesus hang out with? He hung out with tax collectors and sinners, people who recognize the bankruptcy of their own soul. He felt a love for him. I I, I think he looked into this man's soul and he saw something there. He saw this man was not truly good and not truly rich. He saw a cancerous tumor there that he wants to, as the good physician, expose for this man's own good. You know, um, the words that Jesus says next are hard. I'm not going to ask you to sell all your stuff this morning. Jesus isn't after your stuff. He's after your heart. But if your heart is wrapped around your stuff, be warned, okay? Um, What does he say to him next? It's out of this place of love that Jesus says this. One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. You know, there's two commandments that Jesus intentionally didn't mention in his first list. Um, The first two. (laughs) And what are those first two? What's the first commandment in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And what's the second one? Don't worship idols. Those two can be summed up in the great commandment, which says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You know, Jesus takes a deep, penetrating look into this man's soul, and he sees something. He sees that this man is an idolater just like the rest of us. There's something that this man loves more than God. There's something else that he's truly worshiping. There's something else that has captured his mind's attention and his heart's affection, and that's his wealth. And Reformer John Calvin says it this way. Our human hearts are all idle factories. And it's true for this man. Instead of him owning his wealth, his wealth was owning him. We're created to worship something. And if we're not worshiping God, our our hearts readily manufacture something else to worship. You know, an idol isn't necessarily a bad thing or just a statue made of wood or stone. 
a pagan culture will bow down to. No, an idol can be a good thing that becomes a God thing. In fact, that's usually what they are. <laughs> They're good things in a bad place. You know, a spouse, a career, a child, health, physical fitness, the approval of others. An idol goes from something good that the Lord gives to functioning as a substitute Lord. You know, money is actually not the root of all evil. It's actually a good thing. It comes in handy most every day, right? What is the root of all evil? The love of money. When money becomes your God, stuff goes sideways. Money is a good thing that, beca- that be- can become a God thing. I love how pastor and author Tim Keller puts it when he talks about idolatry. He says this, Idols control us as we seek them, disappoint us if we find them, and devastate us when we lose them. Idols control us as we seek them. They control us because our significance and our security gets wrapped up in them. They become our identity. They're what define us. You know, the rich young ruler had most likely found his identity in his stuff, in his wealth, because it was not only his source of security materially, it was also his source of security socially and spiritually. Because in that day, there was a misconception that the rich were rich because they're holy. That the rich have wealth because God's happy with them. And then the converse of that is true. If something's going bad in your life, hey, God's punishing you. There must be some sin there. Remember the blind man that was born blind? The disciples asked Jesus, no, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was bad theology back then. It's bad theology today. But we still have this kind of concept floating around, quote unquote, Christian circles. That God if he's pleased with you, makes you wealthy. (laughs) Not the case. But this man's identity was wrapped up in his wealth, not only materially, but also morally. Because people looked at his wealth and thought, man, you must be holy. God must be happy with you. God has blessed you. They control us as we seek them. How do I know that his wealth controlled him? How do I know that his wealth owned him rather than the other way around? Because if it didn't, if that hadn't been the case, he would have had no problem trading it for the better thing that Jesus offers him here. Idols control us as we seek them. They also disappoint us as we find them or when we find them. Even though this young man, this rich young ruler, was winning by any human scorecard, he still comes to Jesus with a felt need. He still goes, you know, I think there's something I lack. I better go make sure from this good moral teacher. He still has a gnawing emptiness at the core of his soul that he's hoping Jesus will have answer to. Jesus does, but it's not the answer he wants to hear. Idols disappoint us when we find them. You know, I'll never forget an interview that 60 Minutes did with Tom Brady back in 2005. Tom Brady just won three Super Bowls in four years, and the the interviewer, Steve Croft, is is talking with him, and, and Tom Brady says this, 
Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people will look, look at me and say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, listen to this, my life. But me, I think, God, there's gotta be more than this. And Steve Croft asks him a question. And he says, what's the answer? And Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Idols control us as we seek them. They disappoint us if we find them. But they also devastate us if we lose them. You know, after the rich young ruler um, is told to sell all his stuff by Jesus, what's his reaction? Verse 22, but at these words, his face fell and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. He went away, not just sad, what? Grieving, grieving. It's the same Greek word used and applied to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he's in deep distress and sweating drops of blood. Jesus was grieving, why? Because he's about to experience the ultimate dislocation. He's about to lose the center of his very being. He's about to lose what's most important to him and that's his fellowship with the Father when he's about to go on the cross and bear the sins of the world. What God the Father was to Jesus, this man's stuff, his wealth was to him. He's an idolater. And Jesus is lovingly doing open heart surgery on him to show him the condition of his heart, that he's not really good. In fact, he's not really even obeying the law at all. He's, he, he's not even obeying the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before, before me. And, and Jesus wants to show him that to give him something far better. You know, despite this man's moral exterior, his influence in the community and his wealth, he was a mess. And the most loving thing Jesus could do was point out his lack. Jesus is zooming in on the man's heart and showing him what's there. What's this? It's a blank, pure, pristine piece of paper, right? But if we were to take a microscope and zoom in on it, it would look like this. It looks a little bit tangled, looks a little bit messy, doesn't it? When you look at something up close, your perspective changes. You know, there's a lot of people here today. And some of you are no stranger to church, our church building. The church is the people, not the building, by the way. Some of you are no stranger to this thing we call Christianity. And maybe you even grew up going to church like I did, and, and you, you were the one who won the sword drills in Sunday school, and you memorized the books of the Bible before you were 10, and you went to the Awana Club, and you learned all these verses, and you got this big trophy saying you won all these, or memorized all these verses. And the worst thing you've done externally is get a speeding ticket. Others of you, perhaps you've been in and out of rehab, perhaps you've been in and out of jail, just getting a speeding ticket is a great day. You know, but when you zoom in on all of our hearts, they look like that. 
And if you're not familiar with the tangled messiness of your own heart, the twisted motives behind even your good deeds, then Jesus probably doesn't mean that much to you. He's probably just a good teacher. And Jesus loves this man. And he wants to show him his lack. Jesus lovingly looks into this man's soul and wants to offer him something better than his wealth. Where's the solution to this man's sin in this passage? Is it in the command to sell all he has? Not necessarily. Obeying the law doesn't make things better. (laughs) Jesus isn't after this man's stuff. He's after his heart. He doesn't want to modify this guy's behavior. He wants to change his God. One thing you lack, go to all you possess and give it to the poor. And here's the solution. You'll find treasure in heaven and come, follow me. That's not an invitation Jesus gave out willy-nilly like. That was to a select few. Come, follow me. I want you to follow me. Where is he going, by the way? Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? This guy would get, if he, if he took him up on his offer and followed Jesus, he would get to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would see a man, a perfect man, hang on a cross, go to a grave, rise again on the third day, and understand God's provision for messy hearts like yours and like mine. But this guy goes away far too soon. At these words, his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's really difficult for those who have it all to recognize they need Jesus like everybody else. It's really hard for the self-sufficient to recognize their neediness spiritually. And the disciples, because of their cultural misconception about wealth, in verse 24, are amazed at his words. But Jesus answered them again. He takes it up a notch even and says, children. Interesting that he calls his disciples children here. That's a tie from the previous passage. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been around church buildings for a while, you've heard people probably do gymnastics with this and talk about this gate in Jerusalem that's a a short and narrow gate, and they call it the needle's eye because it's really hard for a camel to get through it. But if the camel ducks and (gasps) sucks in its gut, it can squeeze through there. So Jesus was just saying it's hard for people to get into God's kingdom. Now, wrong. Jesus is talking about a literal camel and a literal eye of a needle. And he's saying, it ain't going to happen. And his disciples understand that. And so that's why they say this in verse 26. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? They rightly understand Jesus' intention here. That if it's up to human effort, nobody's getting in. Not even this guy who appears to have it all together. And that, really? 
Who can be saved? And I wish the rich young ruler had stuck around for the hope of verse 27. Looking upon them, Jesus said, with men it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And if you follow me in where I'm going to Jerusalem, and you see what I'm going to do for you, you see an empty tomb, you're going to understand that what's impossible for men is possible with God. You're going to see messy hearts that are transformed from the inside out, not the outside in when they put their faith in me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus definitively redefines what it means to be a good person. And what does he say? There is no one good except God alone. And now, Jesus is going to redefine what it means to have a good life. Peter, love this guy. (laughs) He is always saying something. And here we have in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, he's over there doing the math, okay? Behold, we've left everything and followed you. He sees this guy who appears to have everything go away empty-handed, and he's starting to think, well, I left my fishing business to follow you. Hey, Jesus, what, 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 what does that mean for me? And now Jesus does not rebuke him for his self-focus here. That's the beauty of it. What, what does Jesus do? He seems to affirm the trade that Peter made. You've made a good trade, Peter. What does he say? Verse 29. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Is this some sort of prosperity gospel here? Hold on, we'll get to it. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and farms. Can you really have hundreds of mothers? Now, if you've ever been single, like I was up until I was 27, in a church context or a church body context, it feels like you have 100 mothers. I have this gal I want you to meet. <laughs> Hundreds of brothers and sisters. Obviously, you can't have 100 mothers. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about what I just talked about. He's talking about a new family. If you follow me, there's going to be this new community that you become part of. It's going to be called the church, and you'll have... Brothers, sisters, mothers, houses. What does the church in Acts do? They share all things in common. They sell fields when somebody has a need. True wealth, true richness of life is found in community and in the family of God. Notice that Jesus doesn't say anything about hundreds of fathers. Why? All of us have one true father in this new community. And then there's something that Jesus says right after this, after we receive 100 times as much in this present age, that a lot of prosperity gospel preachers today conveniently leave out. What does he say? Along with persecutions. In other words, it's not going to all be a box of cookies, not even Thin Mints, okay? This is going to be difficult. There's going to be persecutions if you follow me with your life. And in the age to come, eternal life. 
I love how Jesus bookends things here. The rich young ruler comes asking him, how can I earn eternal life? And here he says, you're going to get it to his disciples who've made a good trade, who've left everything to follow Jesus. And when you're following somebody, that person's priorities becomes your own. You begin to wrap your life around the gospel, the good news. And you understand that you're not just saved from something, your sin, but you're saved for something to join Jesus on his mission in the world. And it's a wonderful thing. And that's where life that truly is life is found. So God, Jesus, redefines goodness and the good life. Goodness is not found in our moralism. It's found in Jesus. The good life is not found in our stuff. It's found in treasuring Jesus and having a willingness to let go of our stuff for the sake of the gospel. Just to tidy, put a nice tidy bow on it, we could summarize it like this. The good life is found in following the only one who is truly good. The good life is found in following the only one who is truly good. As we wrap up, I want to ask you two questions. First question is this. When it comes to eternal life, when it comes to life after death, have you transferred your, your trust from yourself to Jesus? When it comes to eternal life, have you transferred your trust from yourself to your only hope, Jesus? See, the gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means, is this. That you're far more sinful than you ever dared to believe. But you're far more loved by God than you ever dared to even hope. And God demonstrates his love for us in this. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to whoever Saint, sinner, good, bad, whatever category you want to put on it, whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever transfers their, their, their trust from themselves to Jesus has, receives eternal life. That's good news. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and you don't normally come to a church building. You wouldn't describe yourself as religious, you'd say, yeah, I'm pretty irreligious actually, and I'm okay with that. Let me say this, I'm glad you're here. I don't know why you're here. You might have got dragged by your spouse or a friend, but we're glad you're here. I want to encourage you not to leave here the same. Now, nobody's going to tackle you in the parking lot if you want to just slip out quietly and say, you need to believe in Jesus. No, that's not going to happen. You're more than welcome to leave here just as you came in. But when, the, when life gets quiet, when the noise fades, what's going on at the core of your soul? Do you sense any kind of lack? Do you sense any kind of emptiness there? See, this old guy named Augustine put it this way. We as humans were created for God. And our souls, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Is it possible that Jesus might have something 
that you lack and he wants to fill that empty place in your soul, I would say yes, because I've experienced it. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you, feel no pressure to do this, but I would encourage you that afterwards, come on down. Our prayer team will be up here. I'll be up here. I'd love to chat with you about that. Perhaps you've been coming to a church building for a long time. And you're like, Mark, you know, I'm a good person. You know, I've tried to live my life the best that I could. And I hope that's good enough. I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I think God's okay with me. Your morality is your functional savior. In other words, you're relying on yourself to save yourself. But there's something interesting about that. Your morality is actually your God and you're breaking the first commandment. And ironically, your morality is actually making you immoral. And you need a better savior. And his name is Jesus. And when he died on a cross, he didn't say, earn this. What did he say? It is finished. It is finished. The price has been paid. Salvation is by works, but it's not ours. It's the work of Jesus on the cross and through an empty tomb that gives us hope. Would you transfer your trust from yourself to the only Savior that there is, and that's Jesus Christ? I want to ask you a second question this morning, one that will hit all of us. And that's this. Is there a good thing that's become a God thing in your life? Is there a good thing that's become a God thing in your life? And perhaps this is even being revealed in your heart right now through some difficult circumstances that are bringing some devastation to your life. If Jesus were to look at you and peer deeply into your soul, what would be the thing that comes out of his mouth next? What might he ask you to loosen your grip on? And you might say, you know, I, I can't get rid of my idol. I'm married to it. Or I birthed him. But are you willing to say, God, would you please reorder my affections this morning? Would you please take the good things that you've given me in life and, and put them in their proper place. Since this text goes towards money, towards stuff, I want to go there as we close and take us in that direction. Affluence is spiritually dangerous. Do you know that Williamson County, Tennessee is like 14th on the list of income in per capita of counties in America. But when you factor in the cost of living, because other places are like in Washington, D.C., and New York, and San Francisco, when you factor in cost of living, do you know where Williamson County goes on the list of wealthiest counties in America? Number one. We live in the wealthiest place in one of the wealthiest countries on earth and 99.9% of the world looks at us and says, you're filthy rich. 
You know, we can always look at these houses on the top of the hills and go, no, I'm not rich, that's rich. No, you're rich. In fact, if the rich young ruler were to come to one of our houses and just see our refrigerator or our toilet, wow, you're wealthy. We are privileged. And it's often a mistake that we make to think we're blessed by God. But are we really? Are we really? Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's a correlation between being materially poor and being spiritually poor, and that is that both recognize their need for God. Our wealth can inoculate us from a felt need for God. And as often is the case, our wealth has a way of owning us rather than the other way around. You know, we don't need to lock our doors oftentimes in Williamson County. It's a physically safe place to live. But it's one of the most spiritually dangerous places to live on the planet. How do we safeguard ourselves from the love of money? from looking to our stuff as our functional savior. You know, the point of this passage isn't to go out of here and put everything on Craigslist or a Facebook buy, sell, trade page, okay? Um, God might be asking you to do that, but he's after our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you value most will be what you worship. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. We're wealthy. We're rich. How do we make sure that our stuff isn't owning us and sitting on the throne of our hearts? Paul gives us some advice to Timothy to pass on to us. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, we read this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Is money stuff bad? No. But get this. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up for themselves treasure and a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that truly is life. The good life is not found in our belonging, is not found in our stuff. It's found through our generosity. Are you like me and you struggle to be generous? You know, the antidote to that is not guilt. I'm not going to put a slideshow up on the screen of poor kids and play Sarah McLaughlin in the background. (laughs) The antidote to, to greed in our hearts and a lack of generosity is not guilt. It's the gospel. It's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. More specifically, it's worship. It's wrapping our our, our mind's attention and our heart's affection around Jesus, who is the true, rich, young ruler.
Stand with me. We're going to read a passage of scripture as I invite the band to come back up. Read this with me. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Get this. Jesus is the true and better rich young ruler who let go of what he had to give us what we could not gain or earn on our own. And when we worship him, it weans our our hearts off of the stuff of this earth and it loosens our grip and allows us to be generous. So it's fitting that we close in a song of worship ascribing worth to the true and better rich young ruler. Let's sing.